0: Okay, hey there friends, this is Brian Husky and thanks for checking out another episode of Skylines. Uh, This essay today is a look back at my 2016 archery elk season and what really kicked off a formalized effort to share my complete um, accounts of my hunting seasons with audiences beyond my close friends. For all the years prior to this point, my hunting rut reports as I called them, would go out as emails accompanied by photos of the highs and lows of what each archery season had provided. And that actually goes way back, even before the social adoption of email to the 90s, when I'd haul around photo albums with me. My ensuing rut report kicked off a little something like this. 2015 had been a banner season and was reflected by several lengthy email sends. I'd put an archery bull and rifle buck in the freezer and had soaring hopes for what a whole new unit would offer for my upcoming 2016 archery season. As I may have explained last year, in efforts to elude other hunters, I've shifted my elk hunting locations several times in the past four years. The area I spent hunting in 2014 and 2015 had a lot of bulls and very little hunting pressure. Sounds great, right? However, it also possessed another very strange characteristic. Up until the final days of September and the season, the bulls in that area were 100% uninterested in any vocalization or rutting behavior. For the main obvious reason, there were zero cows in those mountains. It was like a summer range scenario throughout September, with bachelor herds of hard-horned, ready-to-rumble, mature bulls preferring the company of other males and not a cow to be found. Lower-lying areas and adjacent mountain clusters held typical elk herds and rutting behavior that was commencing by the opening day of August 30th. But too many hunters had pressured me away from those zones and up into these high alpine peaks and canyons. It was very strange to spend days of September amongst dozens of bull elk and not hear a single bugle. Quite honestly, it was flat out disappointing as strategizing and elk calling is a primary reason that I love to archery hunt elk. All the non-vocal elk I've encountered in the past are typically a result of intense hunting pressure and knuckleheads educating elk by bugling and cow calling from their trucks or ATVs. But here i finally discovered a remote, roadless area with little to no hunters and absolutely loaded with mature bulls. So this made no sense at all. Given this frustration, I decided that for 2016, I would change locations once again. I decided to move to an entirely new region in Tag since I also very much simply love exploring Idaho. Elk season is my hall pass to get out there, to get dirt under my fingernails and simply wander. Many hours of poring over maps, Google Earth, and property ownership info, along with a couple of late summer scouting trips, led me to a new area that held a large population of summer range bulls. The lack of well-traveled roads into the area and established campsites led me to believe that this area was also overlooked by most hunters. So, my hope was that come August 30th, the elk would still be there and other hunters like myself would not. My hometown buddy Harris from Bend, Oregon joined me for the first few days of the season. We were stoked to roll up to our parking spot and find no other hunters, and the bulls I'd seen during the month of August were still in the area we explored this new range with multiple close encounters and near shot opportunities at various sized bulls. We heard a few bugles and saw at least one cow. Good early season indicators for a return to normal elk hunting. Many times we had bulls come into our calling setups, but without any bugling or vocal response of their own. That's not super surprising for opening weekend of the season though. At one point, I was able to stock within bow range of four mature 6x6 bulls, but the wind shifted just as I was about to have a clear shot at the nearest. Overall, our opening week was encouraging, filled with lots of close encounters. The following week, I made another trip up and once again found no other hunters and plenty of bulls. I had more close calls before a shifting wind occurred, and I was even able to pass up two opportunities at small bulls. Still, however, not much for bugling activity or hormone-induced interest in calls. This was very curious, given that like my previous hunting spots, these bulls were completely unharassed or pressured by hunters. I would expect them to be very responsive to calling. The third week of the season was another solo trip for me, and perched high atop a ridge, the early glow of sunrise revealed a group of eight elk in a meadow below me. A few minutes later, I spotted another group of seven. As morning light eventually spilled into the valley, it revealed once again this bizarre phenomenon. They were all bulls, not a single cow. What the hell is going on? I wondered. Where are all the cows? This is the middle of September for Christ's sake. This new area was turning into a repeat of my previous location. Another enclave of alternative lifestyle bull elk. And I was once again repeating the nickname for my last spot, the gay bar. These bulls rubbed their antlers normally in thrashed trees. In fact, the rubs in the area were stunning and too numerous to count. I even watched bulls lock antlers and spar with each other. I'd toss every variety of cow sounds into the mix and they'd barely bother lifting their head to have a look. They were in a zone without any cows and they had absolutely no interest in joining any cows. Even the drunk, slutty, hot and ready ones that I was sounding like. I was at a loss for explanation. From the peak I was standing on, I could literally point to neighboring slopes, mountains, and canyons that held herds of elk with bugling bulls in a typical hierarchy and had been for weeks at that point. But my preference to avoid other hunters had me settled in this location with these strange acting bulls. Later that morning, however, a few of those bulls did begin a volley of bugles as they dispersed from the blanket meadow to their respective bedding areas, deep in the sprawling masses of dark timber. I pursued several with close encounters, spoiled by the swirling wind of course, before eventually hooking into a legit bugling exchange with one particular bull. He sounded really good and appeared to actually be arriving from the opposite direction of all these others. Everything was setting up perfect as he responded instantly to my calls and branch rubbing racket. With seemingly too-good-to-be-true reactions, the overly cooperative bull was on a string and coming directly where my calls led him. We were on the slight crown of a ridge that gently tapered toward the east in a line of jagged peaks, that scraped the sliding clouds like enormous glaciers puncturing the sky. Mature lodgepole pines filtered the view with perfect trunks like telephone poles, leaving nicely balanced 50-50 visibility out to 100 yards or so. I was moving swiftly, perpendicular to the ridgeline the bull was traveling, in hopes of topping out and then perching myself on the opposite side I'd been broadcasting my calls from. I knew where I wanted to get to, but the bowl was moving fast, so I was uncertain if I could make it before we entered visible range of each other. With each of his replies, I'd calculate where he was at and then zoom ahead to gain ground before slowing to a creep and testing his range again. At last, from the previous bugle exchange, I sensed he could be coming into visibility at any moment and decided I would have to abandon my push to make it over the ridge top. I took a knee, I knocked an arrow with number one written on the cock vein in black sharpie. I lifted the thin mesh timber patterned face mask from around my neck to the bridge of my nose and pinched the soft metal band tight. A touchstone ritual I'd repeated for the twenty some years since it had been given to me by my good friend and former world elk calling champion Mark Bales. Every time I pulled that net over my face, I knew it was game time. The vintage accessory carried the distinguished smell of camping gear, sweet summer dust, and pine. I took a deep breath and savored the moment. Connecting my release to my bowstring, I was transitioning now from covering ground to an effort to settle in and become a perfectly still part of the surroundings. It was only a moment before off in the distance, my eye caught the buckskin colors of the bull's profile sliding between slender trunks of golden pine bark. There was still just enough cover between the two of us that I could make a few final adjustments to the setup. Once he passed behind a few dense fir trees, I could offer a final verbal insult and then scurry a few more yards towards an even safer wind angle. A gentle breeze was pushing from squarely behind, but the bull was coming perpendicular from my left, so I intentionally directed the sounds that I punched out of my bugle tube back in the direction I'd come. As I did this, I could see the bull's gaze turn, not towards me, but behind me, just where I wanted him to fixate. If I could advance a little bit further and then rotate 90 degrees, I should have an ideal setup as the bull followed a line towards the mark my last call had made. His heading was perfect and I knew that like a rower's last lunge, that previous call I'd made would have to be my last and the bull would have to coast the remaining distance unassisted by any further calling. I was concentrating hard to remain focused on everything except the giant rack slung over this elk's head. He was a very big bull, and I knew I had to fight to keep my composure steady as it was. But when a big bull is approaching, not looking at the antlers is akin to not looking at cleavage. It takes great restraint and always reminds me of Seinfeld character George Costanza getting busted leering down the top of forbidden fruit Gently tipping, rocking, and swinging antlers are like ultra-powerful magnets pulling so hard at your gaze, inviting the eyes to take in every detail and admire all the greatest features and make a trembling shooter like myself even more nervous, wobbly, and rattled. I nodded my head low enough that the bill of my hat blocked his upper third, and stared blankly at the elk's polished black hooves as they strode closer and closer to my waiting ambush. At about 60 yards out, he ambled behind a final stand of trees, providing enough cover for me to advance one last time. This primal dance reminds me of a cartoon or movie scene where two characters are closing in on each other as each passes behind cover and checkerboards closer to the other. This recurring game of cat and mouse with elements of calling mixed in is a staple of my hunting playbook, and I would consider myself proactive compared to other hunters I know, as I rarely have encounters with my quarry that begin and end in the same footing. It's like playing a big fish in water that's fraught with potential entanglements. I reel in distance hard and fast, rarely if ever lying back to let things play out. I just believe that shooting opportunities are almost always made and rarely just simply happen by accident without deliberate strategy employed. Whether it's a matter of enabling clear shooting lanes, avoiding being spotted, or minding what the wind is doing, I typically choose to be aggressive in mobility to get shooting elements aligned because I've learned it's always just a matter of time before that wind is going to screw me. So. Whenever feasible, I don't waste time waiting for that to happen. At about 50 yards out, the mature bull paused and began rubbing a tree within the lodgepole forest. I quickly took this opportunity to advance into closer range and an even safer downwind angle. I'd made my last move, and between the bull's own strolling and my advance, I now found myself within comfortable shooting range of the bull, pending a presentation of the right angle. This ambitious and deliberate approach left me poised safely downwind of the bull and all that remained was an opportunity to draw my bow. With an easy 40-yard shot before me, he clocked his rotation a few positions while leaning into the tree trunk, scraping and ripping bark away with his antlers. He would pause to rub scent from glands in front of his eyes onto the freshly exposed wood. He then sniffed the tree and resumed the up-and-down scraping with his ivory-tipped brow tines. Urine sprayed the ground below him and I could hear the drops splashing into the crunchy dry pine needles. He stepped back and forth, tamping the wet puddle with his hooves, patiently. I waited for him to look away or obscure his vision so I could draw my bow. But with his quartering to me orientation, his left eye was continuously exposed throughout all these activities, and I remained still as a stump. I was confident that at any second he would turn his gaze away or even merely inspect the opposite side of the tree trunk and I could draw, aim, and shoot. Even so, I strained to keep my cool. I struggled to contain the reality of the situation, and I refused to admire the heavy, long, and symmetrical 6x6 rack that I could practically feel in my own two hands at this point. A tremendous accomplishment was dangling haplessly in front of me, like a ripened peach at eye level waiting for me to pluck it. This bowl of a lifetime was about to be mine solo. The inevitable success of the moment was almost unbearable. My throat was tight and pulsed rapidly with my pounding heartbeats. My gums throbbed and felt swollen. I kept my mouth closed in all honesty because I feared the bull could otherwise hear the pounding beats audibly escaping my body. I tried to think about baseball, chores I hated as a child, fat so-called sportsmen on ATVs, Anything but this huge bull rubbing a tree at 40 yards in front of me. This was taking too long and I couldn't stand it. My resolve held firm and I watched intently as the bull's left eye, the eye of Saron, rolled around in his head, back and forth, up and down, yet always dangerously in my direction. My guts shocked into a twist as I saw his form shift and his head tip skyward. I never felt the wind deviate or swirl. In fact, I'd taken great comfort in how stable it had remained. Just the same. His nose bobbed once in the air, and I knew the deal was blown. Before I could raise my bow to draw, he whirled and trotted directly away, ducking and twisting his huge rack gracefully between the trees. The archer's nemesis, the wind, had pulled yet another physics-defying stunt, and somehow piped in to tip the bull off. My level of frustration at that moment was crushing. I pounded the ground with my fists and seethed with anger. Over my life, I'd had so many close calls like this with big mature bulls and every time found myself left holding just my bow in a barrel of sweat-soaked fury at the wind. My frustration could not be explained with words. To that point in the season, I'd had many opportunities maneuvering within bow range of 16 different bulls. 14 of the times, the wind had swirled and blown the opportunities in the final moments. Two times, the wind had held, of course for the two smallest bulls, and I'd passed those up. So this box score of 2-14 to was grinding and made any optimism or hope Feel nothing short of naive. The wind in this place seemed to be particularly defying. Every direction I'd head, it would shift and blow my scent far in front of me. So I'd turn the other way and rearrange an entirely different strategy. Same result. It felt simply impossible to do anything with any hope of success. No prevailing wind or compass heading was dependable. No time-honored logic of rising or falling thermals could be trusted. It was like shaking a box with a rubber ball inside. Constant rebound and zero predictability. And that was only the second lowest point of the day. After making my way into the area I'd planned my evening hunt, the wind continued to shift from north, south, east, and west. My confidence was low as I entered a north-facing panel of timber where I was certain that I'd encounter elk. I'd covered up in full camo and knocked an arrow as I crept through the areas where I would expected to find bulls. I questioned the intelligence of pursuing elk with such shifty wind, but I had to do something with my precious hunting time. And I wasn't but 60 yards into my planned loop before I spotted exactly what I was hoping to find. Ahead of me, a single medium-sized bull fed through the patchwork of old-growth timber and fresh Christmas-shaped fir trees. It was the ideal scenario for a stock. With the bull all alone, there would be only a single set of eyes to keep track of, and the act of feeding kept the elk distracted, along with constant chewing sounds that I always imagine or at least hope Reduces any noise as he may catch from my approach I moved swiftly and silently when each tree blocked his view. I knew it was only a matter of time before the wind would eventually shift in his direction, so I stepped with urgency when I could. in a matter of minutes I'd closed the gap and reached a point where I could see an opening that the bull would eventually walk through. I'd have a clear and broadside 35 yard shot if the bull made it there before the wind tipped him off. My feet were set, face net was up, backpack and all my gear was still on. I had an arrow knocked and was once again exercising my focus, as futile as it felt. The surge of the moment overcame my pessimism, yet time crawled as the bull's pace seemed to slow. It felt like forever as I waited for him to reach the shooting lane. My heart pounded in my chest, and I tried to control my breathing to keep composure in check. I still get incredibly overwhelmed when I'm close to any shooting opportunity. Like clockwork, the inevitable sound of breeze blowing through the trees began and I could feel it twist around me like a flushing toilet, eventually pushing straight against my back. I cringed in anticipation of the telltale body language of an elk sensing danger on the wind. But somehow, his head never lifted, and the tips of his antlers continued rocking along the grassy forest floor. Finally, the bull approached my shooting lane, and I drew my bow as he stepped into it. The motion immediately caught his attention as he raised his head to look right at me and halted in his tracks. It was too late, though, as he was now right where I needed him and presenting an ideal shot. I released my arrow and watched with flooring relief as it disappeared into the side of the bowl within an inch or so of where I was aiming. I dropped to my knees, then rocked backward and collapsed as I unbuckled my heavy backpack and released a tremendous sigh of relief. You've heard me describe that I've had some agonizing experiences tracking and recovering bulls over the years. And because of that, I've gained a wealth of tracking skills when blood trails dry up for one reason or another. The placement of this shot, however, left me with little concern as I approached the tracks in first blood following the standard 30-minute waiting period. I spent considerable time aligning the waypoints of the encounter and looking for my arrow as it likely passed entirely through the bull's midsection. The sound of the hit matched the visual location perfectly centered in the lungs and reporting an audible pop as it hit. The initial blood trail was strong and flowing from both sides of the bull, confirming my arrow had, at a minimum, punctured both sides of the elk. But I had not heard him crash to the ground in the initial moments after the hit, something that seemed a tad bit strange. Tracking an animal is all about attention to detail, and not far into this blood trail an obscure detail caught my eye. As the bull's tracks passed between two young fir trees, one of the trees had a small cut in the flesh-like bark of its trunk. Maybe an inch long and several feet off the ground, the cut was very smooth and clean, not like anything occurring in the natural world would have made. Accompanying the cut was a small wipe of blood. This highly interesting clue was on the right side of the bull's tracks and I quickly speculated it may, if not certainly, have been made by the razor edge of my broadhead. I pulled out my camera and took photos of the mark while scanning the surrounding ground and branches for my arrow, which I imagine may have been dangling, extending partially out of the bull and made this mark while passing between these trees. But I looked all over and found nothing. I continued along the bull's tracks one step at a time one drop of blood after another. Eventually, I came to face the fact that too many steps had passed and too many drops of blood had fallen with no dead bull on the ground. Nothing I could think of made sense for this outcome. And a feeling of nothing was beginning to replace the tremendous sense of relief and accomplishment that I had been so stoked to welcome into my heart. An hour or so later, the blood had trickled to just a few drops every 10 yards, and I'd covered hundreds of yards in total. It was getting late. The western sky was turning orange, and alpenglow light tinted the spectacular view below me. Why were these tracks still going? How could this bull have stayed on his feet this far after a shot that was so ideally executed? I slumped to the ground and tossed my pack aside as I confronted the situation at hand. I drooped in a sloping field of large granite boulders with my head in my hands as the light began to glow through shades of pink. As the trail had been nearly dry when it entered the large field of rock, I'd totally lost him at this point. I'd been pulled through the ringer two years prior with a shot on a big bull that I thought was perfect. It turned out not to be, however, and left me disgruntled and brokenhearted when I left the mountains two days later without the big six-by-six in the back of my truck. The chirp of a pika punctuated the silence with its unique digital-sounding calls. Appearing like a cross between a rabbit and a mouse, pikas are one of my favorite high country companions. It took me a while of hearing the odd beeps before I figured out what was making the sounds. Initially, I thought they were from some sort of a bird, but without ever spotting birds flying from the areas, I started using binoculars to scan the rocky slides I'd hear the calls emanating from. Eventually, I spotted one, camouflaged so precisely with its background, it was a wonder to behold. And from that point on, I'd always take note each time I'd heard their darling little beeps and challenge myself to spot them. I'm about 50-50 at picking them out now so far, and it took me a long time to get any decent photos or videos of them. I usually find pikas in rock fields over 8,500 feet or so, and September a few years back, I was crossing one such place when I came upon what seemed like, albeit miniature, a bale of hay At first I pondered if someone had actually dropped a few flakes of alfalfa bale up here to bait in elk. The strands of mixed greens were so fresh though and closer inspection revealed that they were made up of a variety of what was growing all around the rocks. The furby little critters are super sensitive to temperature and a sad harbinger of impacts from the warming climate as their tolerable habitats are reduced year after year. A little research led me to learn that that little pile of vegetation was actually a store that pikas so carefully, neatly, and perfectly arrange each summer in order to survive the long winter under deep, heavy snowpack. I left my backpack in the rock field and decided I'd backtrack to see if I'd missed any clues. Returning to the strange mark in the tree, I inspected the surrounding area off the trail, and lo and behold... There, several feet behind the sliced tree, beneath the boughs of evergreen, I spotted a section of crimson-red coated arrow shaft. My arrow was pristine and had indeed passed completely through the bull. This bolstered my confidence and at least resolved one of the mysteries of this trail. At this late hour and with his track lost in the rock slide, it was decision time either leave the trail overnight to avoid risk of pushing the bull should he still be alive, or continue past the slide in hopes of finding blood once again or the actual bull. A gross and putrid feeling of doubt was still creeping around me. My heart ached as I swallowed the bitter pill of considering the possibility that I was on the doorstep of losing this bull. After a deliberate self-contained debate, I declared to myself that the hit was ideal, a pass-through of both lungs. I had to keep confidence that the bull was indeed down and he must be close. The pike I'd been hearing bounced past with a few cheerful beeps and seemed to give my spirit a little bit of a charge. Despite all that blurred the circumstance, I had a sense that the bull was indeed expired and not far off. Looking ahead in the direction the bull's trail had been headed before entering this rock-covered slope, a thick and dark stand of timber draped over the steep slide-hill slope we were traversing. I'll follow through that and then pull the plug till tomorrow, I concluded. I made my way through the rocks in a path I imagined the bull would have taken, and within a few yards of entering those trees, I looked uphill and spotted antler tips motionless and horizontal on the ground another twist to this new area was the presence of wolves nights prior i'd heard their haunting sounds with the falling of dusk at first just one would initiate a solemn sequence of notes then from quite a distance away more would join in it seemed like they spent their days apart then at night would call out to initiate the evening's activities, whatever it is that wolves do at night. I tried to keep this thought at bay as I swiftly worked to take my bowl apart into well-practiced pieces small enough to pack out one at a time. The rear quarter and rump went first. The back strap from the hip to the back of the neck came off next. It was while I worked to remove the front shoulder and brisket that I reached the point my headlamp was needed. As I stood up to stretch my back and relax my shoulders and arms, it started. Below me, downwind, the chilling sound of wolves lofted into the sunset. I promptly concluded that I am no mountain man, and I packed what meat I had ready to go into my backpack. Then I covered the bowl with my coat, vest, and bow. I drained a piss in four spots around the bull, marking the site as human property for any marauding critters to avoid overnight. All right, field dressing my bull. Shot it a little late in the afternoon and so I'm just now getting going on it. And now I got wolves howling down below me. Not what you wanna hear not something that makes it fun to think about being here working on this guy in the dark and packing meat out all bloody at night but uh man am i ever grateful to have got a nice just a little five by five kind of a tweaker on one side but made a pretty good shot on him and um, man i'm stoked my first solo bowl pumped about that the next morning i arrived early to find some disruption to my great surprise, the coats had been thrashed, bloodied, and pulled from my bowl. My bow was on the ground and covered in bloody paw prints. It was like nothing I'd ever seen before. Over decades of past experience, bears, coyotes, etc., nothing had ever touched meat that I'd left overnight in this fashion. I guess wolves are bolder, however, and I counted myself very lucky that prior to leaving the night before, I'd removed and bagged all the accessible prime meat and all the wolves did was gnaw into the areas where I'd already made my cuts. Not more than a few stakes were lost. The next few hours I enjoyed the experience of field dressing the remainder of the bull, something I've done many times before, but this was the first time as a solo venture. This entire harvest would mark a few firsts as complete solo process and the first time like this in a new spot. It was a beautiful morning to be on a mountaintop in Idaho, and I savored the solitude of the moment while basking in the satisfaction of success. It was awesome. Now, feeling a tad ashamed that I hadn't stayed overnight to defend my harvest, I considered another challenge to make this experience as fulfilling as possible. I decided that if I wasn't brave, I'd strive to be tough. I'd combine the loads that I'd normally carry in each trip, figuring that I could pack the bull out just under the two miles back to the truck in one more trip. The load strained my body to its max, but it felt great, and since I'd worked very hard leading up to and during the season to be as fit as possible, my body handled it well. I'd stop each half mile and sit for a few minutes, then recover and amble on. By 1 o'clock, I was back at my truck with the entire bull loaded and ready for my drive back to Boise. For the few final days of the season, I once again teamed up with Brian as he set out to fill his Idaho tag for the second year in a row, although Idaho did not seem too happy to have him back. We were met with three days of the most intense wind, driving rain, and dense fog you can imagine. To make matters worse, this particular situation of these alternative lifestyle bulls still persisted. However, over the last few days of September, still not a single cow could be found, and the many bulls that were in the area showed only marginal interest in any kind of calling. They did, however, give us just enough engagement that we were able to locate bulls and on occasion bring a few of them into our setups. So, between that and the simple density of how many bulls were in the area, we enjoyed a few very active days as the weather would allow. Brian had shot opportunities at a handful of respectable-sized bulls, but for one various reason or another, we just never found the perfect scenario for another harvest. Throughout the season between Brian and I, we figured we were within bow range of bulls on an average of 2.5 times per day, Pretty incredible, and due in part, I'm sure, to the strange all bull and no breeding behavior. So overall, the season felt like a mixed bag, a blessing in the lack of ever vigilant cows that so often disrupt anything the bow hunters trying to accomplish in a typical elk calling and hunting, but also a curse to spend yet another September in country thick with bull elk and not be able to enjoy the frenzied chaos of hunting elk in the rut. I'm not sure what next season will hold if I'll give this area one more year, or yet again, move on to explore more of Idaho in my search for elk hunting nirvana. Either way, you'll hear all about it in my next rut report. So there you have it, and that is how my 2016 elk season wrapped up. And if you're up to speed on my existing podcast episodes, you know that I did not return to the gay bar for 2017, but instead relocated yet again and had quite a story to share from everything there. But in case you haven't yet listened, I won't spoil anything, and you can hear that for yourself beginning with the podcast episode number one called Gone with the Wind. And with that, I'm Brian Husky, Thanks for listening and coming along. Okay, a couple quick notes here. Um, I'm building out the Skylines website, and part of what's pretty cool are photo essays to accompany many of these episodes. I have so many images of these hunts, and so a lot of what I describe is Actually, in pictures that you can see in these photo essays. So, check out skylinesadventure.com for that. And thanks as always to my friends, the wrinkle neck mules, for the tunes.